Market timing. Wouldn't it be great if there was a case study of the worst investor in history? And what if we had a superpower that will help you make it through all market volatility? It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. So, Brian, my favorite part about these shows is always when you say, hey, guys, give me a really good idea for the intro. And we give you an idea, <laughs> and, and then your completely... intro is absolutely nothing like that. But you still did fantastic with it. Well, I felt, because we're going to introduce the concept of what we're talking about today. But I, So we're going to really, you know, show what Ben wrote his post about. Sure. So I kind of wanted to make sure we, we still covered what we were going over. By the way, this is Bo's birthday. Um, did I say it the right way, or did I say it Southern way? Did I say Birthday, or did I say birthday? You said birthday. Okay, birth. good. I have, to, I have to watch that. The Southern in me comes out really <laughs> heavy on the word birthday. So um, if, if y'all didn't know, Bo turned 21 today. That's right. Finally, Brian. You, what's funny is that joke, we've gotten old enough that it actually, it actually is, is worthwhile now. now. Yeah, right. But here's what we're going to be covering today is that, have you ever gone to the cocktail party um, where the brother-in-law or some coworker cannot wait to run up to you and just brag about how much money they're making out there with their high-flying stock pick or some stock, you know, option trade they've can't, made. Can't wait to how early they got in on that one stock. The thing I've always noticed about these people when they when they want to brag about their trades is they never tell you about their losers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, what we want to talk about is there was a great piece written back in 2014 by Ben Carlson from A Wealth of Common Sense. Ben wrote this piece, and what he wanted to show was just the follies of market timing. Sure. But then he, he wanted to kind of put the whole concept on its head a little bit, and he said, well, what, about, what if you really are the worst investor ever? You know, and he called him What's Bob. A pretty hard charge. The right worst there. investor. And what, when you say the worst investor, the, the setup for this was is that he had Bob buying in at the peak of about every market. So every time the market was as high as it could have been is when he buys in right before the, the you-know-what hits the fan. Yeah, because what the setup is is you've got Bob, the worst investor in history, who graduates college, we're assuming, in like 1970. He's okay. 22 years of age, and he's going to work all the way till the end of 2013. Okay. And it's kind of his journey into saving. And um, but remember, he's the worst investor. So that that's kind of the setup. And and here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to put a different spin on it. Ben did a great job with it, but I wanted to add some flavor to it. This piece was written in twenty at the beginning part of 2014. So we just well, made it through the then, bull yeah. market in 2013. And I haven't seen Ben do an update on it. So that's one thing I want to do. I want to update and say, okay, we have the performance since 2013. What happened if Bob, the worst investor in history, stayed the course? through the end of 2017. And then the second thing I wanted to do was, well, and, and Ben gave a little, he, he, he hinted at this, but he didn't give a lot of details to it. There is a tool that will help you make it through any bad market condition. It, it really is, is your weapon against market volatility, and that's dollar cost averaging. I love how it can take the emotion out of investing when you just power through by investing on a very systematic sure. monthly, quarterly, annually. You choose what the period is for you, but what happens when you employ that that tool? That's what we're going to be talking about today. So we're going to talk about Bob. We're going to tell his story, mm-hmm. uh, and then we're going to lay side by side 
and, and by the way, Bob's story is not a tragedy. I think it's important to mention that, no, right? It's, it's not it's a tragedy. Uh, so we're going to lay out Bob's story. We're going to lay out what Bob should have done yep. uh, and let you decide for yourself which path you want to be on. That's kind of the way we're going to do this, right? Exactly. And then, as you said, if you're taking the glass half full way of looking at this, Bob, even though he's the worst investor in history, he turns out to be okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's that saying, and we, I don't know if you sourced it, but it's, I mess things up. You know how bad I am. Yeah. It's not market timing. It's how long you're in the market. Oh, not even on. close. Okay. <laughs> not even close. Well, correct me. What's, what's the say? It's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. And that's so true. We'll, we will see that in Bob's story today. So the first thing I want to talk about is let's talk about what market timing sure. is. Um, we, I mean... Oh, that's one. That is one of my favorites. I mean, this is the cycle of market emotions. Right. And what I like about when you talk about the market, the cycle of market emotions, I just dropped it for all the live viewers, um, is that you get to see, you know, the euphoria, the optimism as you're going on the upside, but then you also see how people freak out and panic when things are in a down market. Um, and what this appeals to is really the two sides of human nature. Mm-hmm. You've got Fear, which is you don't want to lose what you already have, right. and that we and us as humans, we have a strong, um, you know, fear of losing money sure. and just don't like pain, don't like suffering. So that that stuff sticks out to us. The other side of human nature, though, is greed. Is that when we hear about it? Remember that friend who comes up to you at the cocktail party and tells you how great things are? You probably are starting to feel like, man, I, I, I got to get a piece. I of that. ought to be in that too. So. And the thing about market timing is, is that it hits you on both sides. If you're market timing during a good market, you're trying to get some of that irrational exuberance. You're trying to buy while everybody else is getting all frothy and excited. That's the greed that's kicking in. Just like, but then the other side of it is, is when things are really scary and markets are losing, you know, the headlines every night are talking about how much people are losing in the financial markets. There's a lot of you that are just thinking, well, I've got to be comfort. I got to seek comfort and get the heck out of this thing. And that's the fear that kicks right. in. What's bad is that you can miss this on both sides. Exactly I mean, right. so it's better if you just get a good plan of action and avoid even trying to, you learn how to conner, you know, control and foster the, the fear and greed and the, the market and the emotions that you face. And I think a lot of people struggle with this. They think, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not a market timer. I'm actually really risk averse. I don't really try to time the market. But, but, after 2013, I started going to cash because I recognized the market was doing pretty well, and I'm just waiting for that double dip. I'm not a market timer. I'm just waiting for that double dip. I'm waiting for the opportunity. Well, that in and of itself is kind of market timing. If you're somebody right. kind of sitting on the sidelines waiting to deploy the cash, you fall into this category, and so we're kind of speaking to you today. What's, what's the favorite, famous Peter Lynch quote that, yeah, I, that so I like? Peter Lynch, makes a, makes a, he had a great quote. He says, Far more money has been lost by investors preparing for corrections or trying to anticipate them than has been lost in corrections themselves. And that's really the setup for today's show. Right. I mean, and the good news is you guys out there in the money, part of the Money Guy family, you're financial mutants. I mean, you're the type of people, I think, that when the market gets beat up, you actually get excited, not because you're fearful, but because you're thinking, man, this is when I can get the best opportunities. Right. And that is, when you look at our, our, our cycle of market emotions, you see there's two points of, 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 
paying attention to is maximum point of financial risk, which is during the euphoria. That's right. And then the point of maximum financial opportunity right here between the, you know, right at the bottom of this thing between capitulation and depression. So it it is, you guys are the financial mutants. I love the contrarian in you, but still I worry about those because we've seen this and Bo, we talked about this when we were doing show prep. The worst thing that can happen for somebody who thinks about dabbling in market timing is to get it right in the beginning. That's right. I mean, because you, you, your first trade out the door, you know, where you try to you sell maybe before a downturn or you buy right before a big run up, you think you are so smart. That's right. But there's a lot of, I mean, as we've learned, there's a lot of you don't control what direction the market is. Anybody who tells you they know what's going on, whether it's the talking heads on TV, they don't really know what's going on. So let's do, let's do the setup. Here's what Ben set up with Bob, the worst market timer. And I've already kind of shared some of this. In 1970, he starts working at the age of 22. Right. His plan of action is he's going to save $2,000 a year in the 1970s. Okay. But he's counting on when we get to 1980, he's going to increase his savings from $2,000 to $4,000 a year. Okay. And then when he gets to the 90s, he's going to do the same thing. He's going to, step, he's going to go from $4,000 to $6,000 a year. And then all the way through the 2000s, he's going to do $8,000 a year. Um, until he reaches 2013, which is age 65. So I'm really good at math, and I did this in my head. 2,000 every year in the 70s, 4,000 in the 80s, 6,000 in the 90s, and then 8,000 in the 2000s, all the way to 2013. Uh, Bob is going to invest a total of $232,000. That is correct, but as Ben points out, because Bob is he's scared, he only wants to invest when he's gotten so frothy and excited of watching his friends and family members make money, he's going to wait until it feels like the coast is clear and it is the best time to invest because everybody's made all this money. So he buys at the tippity top of every market and to the point that he even stops investing after 2007. And and so he's one of those guys that says... Uh, I don't know. Market makes me a little nervous. I'm not ready yet. Yep. Market makes me a little nervous. I'm not ready yet. Market makes me... And finally, after the news media has told you how much money's been made in the market, all your friends have made all this money, that's when boss is okay. Now I want to go get some of that thing that's been doing really, really well. So, and he stopped after 2007 because you know what happened in 2008 and beyond. Sure. That's the Great Recession. So he got so frustrated after that. He just never invested anymore. But he did keep his money working. That's the key point that I want to point out. Bob, even though he was the worst investor, never actually pulled his money out of the market. And once he put that money in, he locked it down in a lockbox, and it was invested in the S&P 500, and he just let it roll. And I think this is another really interesting characteristic trait of Bob. He got the hardest part right, in my opinion. The hardest part is actually just making the decision to save money. So the way that this is laid out is he did indeed actually save $2,000 every year Throughout the 70s. He did save 4000 at the 80s. He just didn't invest that. He let it build up in cash, stockpile, and then once the market was feeling really, really good, that's when he dumped it all in. Well, we see this all the time, Brian. Some of the hardest behaviors we get folks to actually buy into is just saving, just squirreling that little bit off to the side. And it's really, really sad. And you talk about this between... Uh, if you haven't heard, heard this, this uh, illustration before, between your in-laws and your parents, the yeah. difference in savers versus investors, uh, Bob got the really, really hard part of the equation right. The behavioral side of saving, I think, is the hardest part. Mm-hmm. The investing's easy. And it's, and by the way, now it's gotten even easier. Right. If you haven't seen our episode on zero investing mm-hmm. and so forth, man, it is a great time to be alive if you want to be a, you know, 
really low cost investor. So Bo, I want with your background in investments, having a CFA, talk about these dates of investment and why these are important dates. Yeah, so this is what this is what Bob decided to do. Remember, he's gonna invest at the times when the market feels really comfortable. Everybody's happy, everybody's doing well. So he decides to invest his first chunk of money in December of 1972. He put six thousand dollars to work in December of 1972. You, you know what happens right after this. Right after that, the market had a crash of 48%. 48% got cut in half after that. So Bob is like, oh, man, this first trip into investing. Didn't, <laughs> whew, I'm nervous. I'm going to take some time before I, before I do this again. So from 1972 all the way until August of 1987, which was just a fantastic time, uh, Bob decided he was going to build up that cash and what he had saved from 1973 all the way to 87, he's going to take that $46,000 and put it into the market in August of 1987. And, you know, and what happened not a few months after this August of 1987 purchase, by the way, August 1987, good month. Good I mean, month. That's, August for sure, without being your birthday month, is an month. important thing. But there was a crash of 34%. Black Monday was yep. not too many months right after that. So that's a, that's a big historic moment in stock market investing. So Bob just got the old one-two. He got two gut punches <laughs> real big. 1972, it hurt a little bit. I got to imagine when he put the 46000 that hurt a lot. Well, the night, he, then he says, okay, you know what? I'm going to get this right next time. So he really takes some time. And he waits all the way until 1999. But then he starts seeing all the magazine articles, all the covers, talking about all this money being made yep. in tech stocks and all the dot-com and how it's changing the world. And so he takes all that he'd saved up to that point, $68,000, and dumps it into the market in December of 1999. And then we know what happened. Was, I think it was around March of 2000s when we had the crash. It was a crash, the dot-com bubble, it was a 49% adjustment or loss That's right. Right, right after that. So then he said, you know what, I'm getting a little bit older. I got to make some time up. So maybe I won't wait quite as long. I'm going to wait till this market get, gets back to where it needs to be. So in October of 2007, this is when Bob <laughs> is in some of his highest earning years. So he's saving the most that he saved in his career. He says, all right, I'm going to take $64,000. I'm going to dump it in in October of 2007. And we all know the Great Recession, that's one of those where they put the charts right next to the Great Depression because there was a 52% loss pretty quickly. So it's scary. So you heard, if you add up all those numbers, that's worth $184,000. Now, here's what's cool. When Ben wrote this post back in, I mean, it was, it was February 25th of 2014. He wrote this, and he closed it out at the end of December 31st of 2013 with the S&P 500. Sure. All this investment that, that Bob was doing with the, was the S&P 500. That $184,000. Well, let's just let's think about, before you say the number, let's just think about this anecdotally, right? Like... $184,000 invested, and he just got walloped. I mean, 48% loss, 34% loss, 49% loss, 52% yep. loss. He's got a maybe he has 150 left, right? <laughs> I mean, like, like maybe. He's lucky if he got his principal back. Yeah, I mean, he's just gotten hammered. So it just, this has to be bad news, right? That's what's crazy. I was kind of shocked because you're, you're, you're hearing that he invested six figures, low six figures with 184000 Guys, he ended up with seven figures. It was $1.1 million. And this is right at the end of 2013. Right. So here's where the money guy spend comes in. Because I'm like, well, this is a great piece that, that, that Ben did. 
but it hasn't been updated since the end of 2013, and we've had a lot of things happen, and they haven't been all awesome. I mean, think about 2015, we had the the pigs, Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain, you right. know, it had that crisis that was going on in 2015 where the market was kind of flat. If you were international, yep. it was might even have been double digit down. So we, we haven't had smooth selling, but here's what's crazy to me. If you took the same data, we didn't invest another dollar. We took the data that Ben had calculated for Bob at the end of 2013, but we grew it to the end of 2017. Right. That 1.1 million was now worth 1.7 million. So, so you're saying that Bob stopped saving. He didn't put any more in the That's kitty. That's all market performance. That's $600,000. Wow. Just letting your money, your army of dollar bills, getting to work, doing what they do, and growing. That's that's the healthy thing. So it's incredible to think $184,000 turning into $1.7 million. That's pretty powerful stuff. I mean, that, so what I'm hearing, and I, I would think that if you're someone who started working in the 1970s and you've had this entire career and you get to retirement, you're approaching financial independence, you have to feel like if you have $1.7 million saved up, you've been pretty successful, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think what's amazing about Bob's story is that even though he did pretty much the worst timing an investor could do, he was still set up for success. So I like to take it, what do we do if we did this the money guy way? Because you know you guys are financial mutants. And I'm like you, I wouldn't have waited. I mean, the part that just drives me crazy, when I see he invested in 1972, but then he sat on the sidelines until 1987, you got to be kidding me. Nobody who is good with money is yeah. sitting on the sidelines that long. So let's talk about this in terms of let's do this the right way in dollar cost average. Let's take, instead of getting emotional and waiting to the water fills just perfect, let's actually just come up with a behavioral strategy that gets us through that volatility. Because guess what happens when you dollar cost average? In a weird way, you get excited when the market gets beat up because you know every future dollar That's that right. you're putting in is getting in at a cheaper price, a better valuation. It's the same thing on if, if the market is going up. You love it because you constantly have money going in. Right. So it works both ways. So let's kind of think about this. If we have dollar cost averaging, you, I bet – the majority of you out there in the Money Guy family are already doing this. You already have an employer plan contribution where you're even getting that free money from your employer where you're getting the match. You probably got Roth IRAs, health savings accounts, joint or individual investment accounts with that after-tax money. You've got it already working. So and remember, when I say dollar cost averaging, it doesn't have to be just monthly. Right. Some of you guys are only getting contributions or putting contributions in quarterly. <laughs> or sometimes your employer is only putting your money in annually right. for the pension or profit, profit sharing. sharing yep. But the good news is, is that since it's systematic, it takes the behavioral side of it, takes the emotion out of it, that is still considered dollar cost averaging. So, And by, by the way, uh, most of us, right? I mean, you mentioned pensions and profit mm -hmm. sharings. Most of us, if we work for an employer and we have a matching program or we're just putting 3% of our pay or 1% of our pay, we're just getting that employer match, which is free money, you are already doing dollar cost averaging. That's exactly right. Unless you're letting it go to cash. And if you are, let's have a talk about that because cash in a 401k might not be the best thing in the world. You don't want to be like Bob. You don't want to be like Bob. Uh, you're already doing it naturally. And so that's what we're talking about is if you can just take that behavior that your employer has already set up for you and let that happen in all the different buckets of your financial savings. So I wanted to compare and contrast this behavior of Bob the market timer versus a money guy, family member who's dollar cost averaging. I love it. Now, here's the first thing. It, it happens pretty quickly because remember, we heard it when we looked at, at Ben's analysis and his illustration. He had that 
Bob started working in 1970, but didn't actually invest until almost the end of 1972. So there's three years of savings or $6,000 that he kind of built up before he deployed it out there and let that army of dollar bills start working. He furloughed it is my new favorite word that I've been (laughs) using recently. So... What I did was I said, no, that's not that's not the way the money guy family would do it. Right. We would actually, in 1970, we started working. We started saving money. So Amen. we put $2,000 in 1970. We put $2,000 in in 1971, and we put $2,000 in 1972, and we, we wanted to see what the market would do. So at the end of 1972, remember, Ben had that Bob had $6,000. That's not what we had with Bob, who was doing it the money guy right. way. He actually had $7,942. That is a 32% difference over what Bob had going on just because he started saving immediately in 1970. Now, Brian, I'm going to ask you to go way back in time, right? Right. So way back in time when you had your very first investment. And maybe it was $50, $100, whatever. First thing Mm -hmm. that you ever bought. And you saw that it grow, grew. You, you bought something for $100, and that's when you looked at it, it was worth like $150. Yeah. How exciting was that? When you realize you're not working with your brain, your hands, your back, and it's, it's, it, it feels, it, you get addicted to it. That's right. And I, and, and, and I talk about this at 401k enrollment meetings. There are no cons- counseling services for addicted savers. Right. They're just not. I mean, they don't exist because your addicted savers become empire builders. That's right. Everybody kind of, hate on them but they you know it's it's your own addiction that you're working with and if you can get that to happen at a young age it's pretty incredible that's stuff right. so let's fast forward because that's just the first three years of investing nine into 1972 let's fast forward to the end of the let's go by the decades now okay. and we get to the end of the 70s so bob's been out there investing and working for now 10 years so he's it, got twenty thousand dollars invested and, and i just i don't want to belabor this but Bob's not an, like an investing guru. He's just going out and buying the S&P 500. He's not right. like designing a portfolio or picking stocks or anything like that. Just buying the market, right? Right. He's okay. just buying the index. Um, his $20,000 at the end of 1979 would be worth $29,000. There's a 45% growth factor already built into that. Into the 1980s. Now he's, remember when we got in the 80s, he went from $2,000 right. a year to now he's doing $4,000 a year. So now our total investment is $60,000. That $60,000 has turned into, at the end of the decade, $262,000. So there's a 337% growth factor. Okay, so I just want to stop there for a second. So his first little stint, you know, the first little bit he did, 32%. The next decade, 45%. But then something magnificent happened mm-hmm. in the 80s, and all of a sudden his growth rate is... Three hundred and thirty-seven. You haven't. You, you guys go see. The biggest thing I can tell you when you're young is start saving fast and as often as possible. Because what you're trying to do is build up that base level of assets. Because we're, think about in this simple illustration: if you have five thousand dollars and you make ten percent, it's five hundred dollars. Right. But if you have a million dollars and you make ten percent, you have a hundred thousand dollars that you've made. Right. I mean that. That is what happens when you get some critical mass behind you. And you go see that dollar cost averaging, the compounding interest, it all starts working together. Because then we fast forward to the 1990s. Once again, he invested. He went from 4000 a month. Now he's doing 6000 right. a month. So we end the 90s where he's invested a total of $120,000. But listen to this. It was worth $1.6 million. Um, that's a tw- over twelve hundred percent growth factor. I, ju- I just let's say those numbers one time. He invested one hundred and twenty thousand, 
And by the way, this isn't the end of his career. He's still inside of his working years here. And, and by the way, he's not increasing his investment. This is the same money that was in the illustration that Ben used. It's just that instead of trying to time the market, he already had the behavior of saving down. That's now right. he's just deploying the money as he should every year in a dollar cost average. And again, I think this is important. No, you know, Bob's not a musician. He's not a professional athlete. He's not a high-powered lawyer. He's not a doctor. He's not someone who's making a gazillion dollars, and that's yeah. how he's getting these numbers. He's just a consistent, steady saver over time. Sorry, I just I love that part. Well, and here's what I think is interesting is that we are 13 years earlier than when Ben did his analysis. Right. And here we are 13 years earlier, but yet Bob, because he's doing dollar-cost averaging, actually had $500,000 more than what Ben had with his market timing strategy. Unbelievable. So let's fast forward. Let's go to the end of the 2000s. Okay. Remember, we were supposed to increase our savings one last time to $8,000 a year in right. the 2000s. But Bob, being that he's a scaredy cat, and we carried this over even though he's a scaredy cat that now dollar cost averages, right. we stopped him at the end of 2007. Okay. So he only he didn't – he only – invested $8,000 for about, you know, eight years, sure. if you count 2000 through 2007. So it's 184000 He was worth $1.5 million at the end of the 2000s. Okay, so Hoke, I want to make sure that I've got this right, because at the end of doing. the 90s, he had 1.6, yep. then he kept saving, so he'd saved an additional $64,000, but at the end of the 2000s, he only had 1.5. I think you're looking at that as, wow, he has $100,000 less than he had in 1999. Right. But here's what I want people to realize. We, this, was, this, this number I pulled is at the end of 2009. Okay. When did the Great Recession happen? It was 2008 and 2009. Yeah, it was the end of 2008. It was like the last quarter of 2008. And that first quarter of 2009, it got obliterated again. There was a six-month period in there where it just got trashed. Right. I mean... And the thing is, so you, you can realize how much his assets had to have been going into the Great Recession to where we're at the tail end of it. We haven't even had a chance to hit full recovery from the Great Recession. Sure. He still had a million and a half dollars. But it is true, the end of the 2000s was that period where you heard the press. They love talking about the lost decade. That's right. Because there was a period right after the Great Recession that, and it was a historic thing because usually. There's not a 10-year period in history where you can look and see investments losing money. But there was a short period of time right after the Great Recession that it was so negative, so bad, that it actually was a bad decade, right. uh, If you, especially looking at the S&P 500. But so that's a lot of you guys, you probably, I want to go ahead and tell you another concept that you have in investments. I, it's called the pluck effect. If you have a decade where returns are repressed, mm -hmm. and that's what we had in the 2000s, when you had the Great Recession where you basically took out all the gains for an entire decade sure. with how bad the downturn was. I want you to think about like if you had a guitar string, a piano string or whatever, but you pull it down. So it kept getting pulled, 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 pulled tight because it repressed it. It pulled it down. What happens when you let go? The more force you put into the pulling of it, pulling it down, the more force gets shot back up. Sure. And that's actually what happened in the following decade. And we get into the, the, after you know, 2010, 11, 12, all the way through the end of 2017, which is where our analysis carries on, this is what's interesting. That same $184,000 that was invested has now turned into over or right around $4 million. So $180,000 invested over a working career. So let's see, 1970 to 2007. 
How, how many years is that, Brian? Now, we don't. That, that's all. That's, realize, that's 37 years, right? Well, 2013 is when he would reach 65. Okay. So yeah. you, you can see we added a few more years. So he's he is in retirement. Now, he's he's got a pension or he's got some other so Social Security. Sure. So, but he's not pulling money out. He right. just let it keep rolling. So that what was $1.1 million for Ben's analysis at the end of 2013 – it went to 1.7 based upon just letting the market work. But if you change the behavior to dollar cost averaging, it went to four over $4 million. So, you know, if Bob tried to time it and only got in when he felt good, you know, even kind of screwing it up, he turned 184 into 1.1. If he didn't try to time it and didn't try to outsmart it and didn't think about timing but thought more about time in, yeah. he turned it into over $4 million. That suppressed performance of the 2000s was just waiting to be unleashed. And that's why I tell people, when you get nervous, when you go through bad patches, if you're trying to turn lemons into lemonade, I want you to think about what this means for the future. That's why we always talk about price-to-earnings ratios. That's why we're always talking about you got to pay attention to fundamentals sure. because they will give you guidance on what to expect going forward and tell you if things are overheated. But that's what's incredible about having that repressed period of the 2000s it unleashed in the 2010 right. period. And, it, and it's pretty incredible that we've had that and we're still building on that success. So I, I still just want to think again about the fact, like if you think about how we talk about, uh, you know, you should be saving if you want to be a hyper saver. Your goal should really be like 15 to 20% of yeah. your gross income. At the end of Bob's career, he was saving $8,000. Or at the, at the end of his saving behavior, he was saving yeah. $8,000. You know, you think about if he had some employer money, he wasn't out there making hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't think he was a hypersaver. I would not classify Bob as a hypersaver. Yet, even not being a hypersaver, nor being a hyper income earner, he still ended up with $4 million. I mean, that, that, what this tells me is that anybody, and we literally mean anybody, can do this. It's just yeah. a matter of starting early and staying consistent. And, I, and also engage that superpower. Your superpower is the dollar cost averaging. If you want to know the difference between the 1.7 to the 4 million that he could have by dollar cost averaging, what if you could have over $100,000 more annually in your lifestyle in retirement? And that's not hard to do. If you just do the difference between 1.7 and 4 and then multiply that by a 5% withdrawal rate, you can see it very easily. This is the difference between Bob having and living like no one else, traveling the world yeah. and doing things versus just having a good retirement. And it wasn't like there was more money saved. That's it right. was just by his behavior, behavior and having the superpower of just having a plan and dollar cost averaging right. through it. So the last thing we want to close it out with, Bo, we talk about dollar cost averaging. We love dollar cost averaging. But there are some people out there that say lump sum investing. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people, and a lot of really smart people, right? I mean, there have even been like studies, and we've yep. actually done full episodes on lump sum investing versus uh, dollar cost average. By the way, uh, if you're listening to this live, we're going to do a Q&A after the, after the show, after we record. So if you, wanna, if you have some, some specific questions, because I know I've seen some come through on the chat about lump sum versus dollar cost, uh, hang out after the show. We're going to answer your questions. Uh, are we going to give... I think Brian will probably oh, give away. Yeah. There's there's three here, which means he'll probably give away fourteen or fifteen of them. <laughs> um, so uh, so yeah, so we'll answer those questions. Uh, but we get this all the time. You know, should I lump sum? Should I dollar cost average? Um, and there's actually been some really good research. Vanguard did a good research. There's several research studies we covered in previous podcasts and previous shows. Here's the thing I would tell you. I want to get because I'm realistic. I have good common sense on money and the fact that. I think if, it, if it's not a huge material sum for you, um, 
you know, it's okay if you lump sum because there is some science in the fact that mathematically, since markets make money two thirds of the time, sure. it, it makes sense. Because we tell you all the time that seven to eight years out of a decade, usually markets are pretty That's good. Right. And we're experiencing that right now with the financial markets. So it makes sense that lump sum investing, having that money working sooner, is better. Right. So two thirds of the times, the statistics tell us it's better to lump sum invest. However, that doesn't tell the whole story because what your biggest fear is if what happens if you sell a business? What happens if you sell a big plot of real estate? What happens if you come into a once in a lifetime, maybe a retirement payout or something like that? You you love that stat that two thirds of the time you're going to make money with a lump sum, but you're also saying, yeah, but it's just like right now, every day on the nightly news, they're telling us because we had this new trade deal reached Mm -hmm. with Mexico that the stock market's reaching an all-time high. Is this when you for sure want to bet your entire retirement on the fact that we're not going to have any volatility in the next 12 months? I would tell you if somebody gave me a seven-figure payout, like a pension that was trying to get rolled over because they were were doing away with it or something, I would be very hard-pressed to say, let's go put it all in right now. I'd want to come up with a very diligent strategy to put it in over time because what is the research says the difference between lump sum and dollar cost averaging is on a big chunk of money, it ranges depending upon the decades we're looking at. It's only about a one and a half to two and a half percent total difference. So I want to make sure I heard you right. So if you look at lump sum versus, versus dollar cost average, about two thirds of the time lump sum ends up with more terminal value than dollar cost averaging. However, the magnitude of that difference is only about one and a half to two and a half percent. On average, when they look, when Vanguard did the study, so this is what I would tell you. I would look at that one and a half to two and a half percent difference. It's almost like your insurance policy if you're dealing with a large sum of money. Like I said, if you're dealing with you know a few thousand dollars, lump sum invested, it's not a problem. I'm more worried about the people who are coming into life-changing money, and they've got to make a decision. Should I wade into the market through a dollar-cost averaging and fight volatility that way, or should I just throw it all out there? There's a good chance two-thirds of the time you're going to end up okay with the lump sum, but that's not a risk, especially when the premium is just not big enough. Sure. So I wanted to—I don't want to spend a ton of time on, more on that, but I did want to at least let people know we've tried to turn over all the stones and think about the things you would probably be thinking about when it comes to market timing, when it comes to lump sum investing, when it comes to dollar cost averaging. We really do try to give you the strategies that will help you be successful. Now, I've done a horrible job on this episode of giving you the intro of saying. Please go check us out on the Money Guy Show. Oh yeah, the Money, and also, wait, this is the money Guy Show. By the way, show. if you've made it this far, please subscribe. I mean, you've made it this far into the show. The least you could do is subscribe because you're obviously that much of a financial mutant that you want to hang around. And, and we've got some cool things working. We're already doing the live stream. If you have not joined us for a live stream, pre-join us. That's why we set up these cups is because we are giving away these tumblers when we do the Q&A sessions. We've also got some cool stuff. Um, if you want to check out hashtag Ask the Money Guy, we will be doing more series and content that way. But just a lot of fun things going on right now. You know, one thing, obviously, in doing the hashtag Ask the Money Guy and doing the live Q&A after, one of the things that we're really trying to do better is we want to continue giving you guys all this ton, all tons of great information. Uh, but we also want to make sure that we are interacting and communicating with you well and often and getting you the things you want. So if you are if you haven't gone out to moneyguy.com and subscribed, and all you have to do is give us an email address, that way we can keep you updated on all the new content that's coming out. So if you want to have 
uh, exciting new tools you can use, new podcasts, new content, new videos, and just want to stay up to date on that, go out to moneyguy.com, sign up. Uh, that's not really a sign up. Just put no. your email address and you'll stay in the loop. Yeah, and we have some other things coming down the pipe that you'll definitely want to make sure we have your email address so you know what's going on with the Money Guy show. And then last thing is just kind of the way I close it out is everybody's probably going, wow, found this financial show. I, you know, I've discovered this YouTube channel is pretty new. It's less than a year old, but these guys have been podcasting for 13 years now. What's the catch? Why are they giving away so much? There is no catch. Here's our only ask of you. If you appreciate this gift of, of good financial advice given to you, I want you to, when you get to the point that you need a co-pilot or somebody to look over your shoulder and give you a second opinion about your investments or your financial life, that you'll consider repaying us by reaching out to us and consider taking the relationship to the next level. I'm your host, Brian Preston, my co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen. Go check us out, moneyguy.com. We love doing this show and can't wait to see you again soon. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. Brian Preston is a principal with Abound Wealth Management. Abound Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Security and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with the securities laws and regulations. Abound Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment or legal advice.